This is the story about the Irish National Archives. Now, I'm not an archivist or an historian, but I really like stories. So what got me interested in this was not really the archives, but the story around them. A story full of drama. It is about the greatest act of destruction the state has ever seen. and almost a century of heroic efforts to reconstruct what was lost. And though this story is fascinating, and you will hear it, what I found out about the Irish National Archives was just as interesting. Because when you actually stop and think about the archives, what they are are not just shelves of folders and boxes, warehouses of old paper. Preserved in our National Archives are our primary source documents. The records of what actually happened, written down by clerks and administrators. They are the raw material from which our stories are built. Peter Crooks, lecturer in medieval history, Trinity College, Dublin, and principal investigator of Beyond 2022, and I'll tell you about that later, starts this story in 1810, when Ireland was still under British rule, with the establishment of the Records Commission to assess how Irish documents and manuscripts were being archived. So they set up a record commission just to inquire into Irish manuscripts and they uh, surveyed the various repositories in Dublin and elsewhere, described them in terrible condition and start trying to put some order on them. So that's the first moment that really they start to put some order on the chaos of Irish archives. There's still another half century before our own public record office is founded. So after decades of commissions and lobbying, in 1867 the purpose-built record office was opened on the grounds of the Four Courts, the centre of Ireland's justice system, located in Dublin City. Historian Kieran Wallace of Trinity College, Dublin. Beautiful six-storey Victorian uh, metal galleried building, flooded with light, uh, all purpose-built, state-of-the-art archive. They'd built that building to be fireproof, to protect the Irish records in perpetuity. The archive was a living institution at the centre of Dublin. If you think this magnificent new building went up in the 1860s on the quays there, it was commented on in the the press at the time as the most ambitious building project of the decade in the 1860s. Fabulous structure, beautiful granite exterior, well-planned interior, and then staffed with really dedicated, high-profile archivists. The archival community was at the centre of intellectual life, you could argue powerful advocates for the importance of historical records. And one of the things to remember is that the clerks went out and diligently got stuff in from everywhere. This is archivist and historian Katrina Crow. And as she said, the clerks were incredibly efficient at their jobs, collecting records in Ireland that dated back centuries. You know, petty crime records that were really would have given us a fascinating insight into, into life all over the country at the time. We had records of transportation, uh, records of the Reformation, records of land transfers. We had wonderful records of of the churches. Customs and excise, stuff to do with education, charities, all the activities of the state in Ireland, Uh, plus some other odd records. Odd records like, for instance, the medieval guild records of Dublin arrived in. So they were private guilds of like the guild of shoemakers, the guild of tailors, the guild of various crafts. They were never a state operation, but when it came to the 1890s, they thought we have these ancient records going right back to the Middle Ages, where it's safe to put them. We put them in the Public Record Office of Ireland, so they, because that was the safest place. Packed from floor to ceiling with records by the time we get to 1922. 
when Ireland was in the middle of what is now known as the Revolutionary Period. And for the purpose of giving some context, here is a very brief summary of that time. In 1919, Sinn Féin formed a breakaway government and declared independence from Ireland. This led to the War of Independence, which lasted till 1921. When the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed, partitioning Ireland with Northern Ireland remaining under British rule. Disagreement between the treaty and anti-treaty side led to the Civil War in 1922, part of which was the occupation of the Four Courts. Well, when the anti-treaty forces moved in in April of 1922, they made themselves comfortable. The judges' chambers were apparently very nice places to sleep. And Ernie O'Malley and various other people made themselves comfortable there. In Ernie's case, with very nice Vasari prints and illustrated uh, versions of Singh's plays around him. Ernie O'Malley was an Irish Republican officer during the War of Independence and the commander of the anti-treaty IRA during the Civil War. He was a member of the Four Courts Garson. But he was also a writer. And his book, The Singing Flame, describes the occupation of the Four Courts very cultured man. If he looked over his shoulder, he would have noticed 800 years of Irish history sitting in a building, but it didn't strike him to do so. They decided to put two very large mines into the basement of the public record office. During the period of occupation, before the fighting began, uh, the, the Irish and Dublin historical research community were going to the forecourts and saying, um, you do know you've got the public record office in there. You do know these are delicate materials. You do know this is a danger. They got reassurances from both free state forces and anti-treaty forces that don't worry, we understand the value. This won't be damaged. And they must have been just looking at it thinking, I know I'm getting assurances that this will be looked after, but I know this, this isn't going to end well, and nor did it. Yeah. And the assault began on the 29th of June uh, 1922. And the next day, a shell hit one of the mines in the basement of the public record office. The Irish Independent, Saturday, July 1st, 1922. Dramatic end of the 60 hours siege, entire garrison surrender. The following bulletin was issued from Army Headquarters at 4.30 yesterday afternoon. Four courts burns. Terrific explosions. Biggest explosion ever seen before or since in Dublin. And then you see the photograph of the rubble and the ruins afterwards. And because it was metal, it all twisted and collapsed in. The glass roof collapsed in. Some walls stayed up, but effectively you're left with a hollow shell of uh, twisted metal. The destruction of the forecourts in 1922 is so dramatic and visually it's very powerful. Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern History, University College Dublin. A lot of people would be familiar with photographs of the smouldering forecourts. Extract from Ernie O'Malley's book, The Singing Flame. The fire was fascinating to watch. It had a spell like running water. Flame sang and conducted its own orchestra simultaneously. And those images tend to take precedence over an awareness or a knowledge of what this meant and what was in that complex. Volumes of smoke proceeded from the four courts and piles of charred documents were blown high into the air and carried with the wind all over the centre of the city. For a considerable time, the city was enveloped in smoke. 
And then when it cleared off, people emerged from their houses and picked up sheaves of legal documents, many of them portions of historic records, which can never be replaced. And there's a very evocative image of bits of archival fragments floating all over Dublin, all the way out to Holt Head, having come from the city. And they are, or were, bits of the history of the people collectively. And it was gone very quickly. Tom Quinlan, keeper in the National Archives of Ireland. Um, And that was the great tragedy, was that also that it was an explosion uh, which scattered documents as well, as opposed to a fire, maybe where there might be the potential to contain the fire, to rescue documents that were fire damaged. In this instance, you had documents which, on explosion, were scattered to the four winds. There were documents found as far away as on the Hill of Holt, which means that once the explosion took place, documents were blown literally sky high, caught by the wind and, and scattered. Um, and there was an appeal for people to bring documents in. Some did. I've seen some scraps the size of your hand, and it is heartbreaking to see a corner paper that somebody handed in in the 1920s and it's now preserved in the archive. Um, within a day of the destruction, there's a finger-pointing going on as to who did this. We like to blame the British for a lot of things, but it wasn't the British who blew up the four courts in 1922. It was us. This was one of the consequences of the Civil War the treaty and anti-treaty side battling it out. And as to which side actually caused the explosion, that is still a source of controversy. But I'm not interested in the who-done-it side of the story. Katrina sums that up clear enough. So who did it? Well, what did it really was, the fog of war, that great phrase. This is about what we lost and why it matters. And how, nearly a 100 years later, we can try and move beyond the loss. For this loss was catastrophic. Centuries of our stories, our history, our records. Nothing can fill the gap, ever. And that's something we have to live with. So that is, uh, it's a very sad thing to reflect on. It has immense implications for how we view our own past. But it's also a terrible way to have become an independent state to have started a state by burning to the ground 800 years of Irish history. When you consider that this material was irreplaceable, when you consider the the depth of the material and what it represented, certainly there was an attitude on the part of some that these aren't our records at all. You know, this is just another example of English domination and control, that this was the bureaucracy of the British administration in Ireland, that this was, these were, in effect, documents of oppression. When, of course, that was a separate point. The, you know, the question of the, the politics of British rule in Ireland was separate from what those records actually were, which were records relating to Irish people. And the then deputy keeper, which was the title for the head of the office, Herbert Wood was the name of the man in charge. In 1919, he writes a guide to the public records of Ireland. And it's a book which, at the time, must have seemed a very nerdy specialist book. But the book is, uh, it lists about 5,500 series of papers. Now, a series could be a long bookshelf containing the records of Clonmel Town Council, or a series could be half a room with thousands of books, which is all the tax records going back to the Middle Ages, let's say. That book is described as the saddest book in Irish history because we're reading in detail 
not down to the individual page level, but you're getting a good sense of what was in the collection and you're thinking it's all gone. They have a section in Woods' guide which is called um, Extinct Commissions. So that was a commission that was set up like we'd have any commission today to look into a public scandal. And when it finishes, it's extinct. So all its records get held in the Public Record Office of Ireland. So they looked into the collapse of certain savings and loans banks. This is going back into the early 1800s. So again, at the time, that was like, this is a disgrace. This would never happen again. And we will learn from the record by keeping the record. And of course, the record didn't, didn't survive. So we're in the unfortunate position, in a way, of knowing exactly what we lost. All we have to do is read Wood's Guide, which we all did as, as young archivists assiduously and cried and wept, to realise what was gone. And whenever I think of the uh, census records for the pre-famine period in particular, with 8 million people in this country, if you walk through the deserted village in Ackle, uh, which is a really beautiful place that's being excavated uh, archaeologically at the moment, you're walking up and down the streets of, of, a, of what was a populous village in pre-famine times in the 1840s. Dr. Theresa MacDonald, who founded the Ackle Archaeological Field School in 1991. We're now in the um, deserted village of Sleedmoor, the Ackle Archaeological Field School, and our students, uh, who come from all over the world, we surveyed each and every house here. There are three segments. There's the names of the segments relate to types of fields or types of grazing. So the uh, East Village, which is Fahia, the green area, that we know was deserted in 1838. And then during and after the famine, the people in the two segments here, Tour and Tuareva, moved to Dua and possibly Kiel. And of the people that live there, what do you know? Well, we don't know an awful lot about the people who occupy the village. And if we had the 1841 census, we would know the names and occupations and religions and family relationships of all of those people. And they're gone. And they are not retrievable. So that is the knowledge lost with the pre-famine census records. But this is only one small part of the public record collection. The chancery rolls were another. These were the rolls of the records of the medieval Irish chancery courts. The Secretariat of the Kings of England responsible for issuing letters detailing the instructions of the king under the great seal of Ireland. And what would these chancery rolls have told us about life in Ireland? I think it's safe to say that the the 250 years of late medieval history that are revealed by the chancery rolls are the most neglected period in Irish history as a whole. Did we lose all of the chancery? Every rules? single chancery roll was destroyed, yeah. There were 123 that survived till 1922. There would have been from, well, about 650 years and up. Peter Crooks is also principal editor of Circle, a project that is accumulation of nearly four decades of work reconstructing these lost records. And the reason we were able to reconstruct them was that in the 19th century they began transcribing these materials heavily because they suddenly became very interested in the history of the state as they saw it both in England and in Ireland and the records of the state were considered to be the great monuments of the state's long history. And the reconstruction of these records sheds light on life in late medieval Ireland. So the window opens in the mid-13th century and it becomes really really 
full of documentation for the 14th century. That's the 1300s, that's the year of the Black Death, it's the year of the Gaelic resurgence. What the records show is the English government in late medieval Ireland coping with those economic and uh, demographic catastrophes. And all of that very interesting social dynamics from settler and native positions is documented in the materials that are in the chancery rolls. It also gives you lots of information about social history, for instance, towns. The towns were very quick to have all their rights and liberties documented. So this would be their right to elect their own mayor, their right to charge tolls when people enter the town. The commodities that were um, subject to tax or toll when people brought them to the town, those were remarkable things, the spices, nails, doors, boards, hides with furs like uh, foxes, cats, I think I remember seeing. All these commodities are itemised in detail. God, that picture made such a picture, like everything, like the spices, what they were eating. Yeah, those records, though produced by uh, a different government, are full of information about this country and its people and about people who aren't normally documented in our history, you know, the sort of layers of social history beneath the top bureaucrats and administrators and military officers and so on. It, It was a very rich archive for those classes of people. But I mean, the idea that you could, for something 600 years ago, know what a small town in that part of the world, very far from the centre of the administration back then, which was Dublin, was paying into the royal administration. And that money was then silting back up in Westminster. It's rather extraordinary. But that was only, let me give you some context. The Public Record Office of Ireland was six storeys high above a basement. It was full in 1922. It had been full since before the First World War. They were starting to ask for more space. The entire Transfer Rolls collection was roughly six or seven shelves. All those rolls could have been stored on six or seven shelves in one bay of the Public Record Office. And it's very rich in information in those six or seven shelves. If you multiply that out, what was destroyed in the building, it it does become mind-boggling. We're talking about millions of historical records. So we know what we lost, and we know how we lost it. To me, the loss of the census records, because we know how valuable they can be from the way that people have used the 1901 and 1911 census, that is the great loss, the loss of details of the ordinary population of this country that just vanished in a puff of smoke. I suppose part of this is a class issue too. I've often thought about it, that census records generally refer to ordinary people. Of course, they cover everybody. So you're going to get the Lord Lieutenant living in in the Viceregal Lodge with 34 servants and all his visitors and a vast amount of luxury. But you're also going to get ordinary people living in tenements in Dublin and people living in rural uh, labourers' cottages. And I think generally in terms of historiography, until the rise of social history in the mid-20th century, the whole business of the ordinary person didn't matter all that much. And that starts to change in the 20th century, greatly to everyone's benefit. So in the 19th century, when the Public Record Office was built in 1867, and uh, when it was being stocked with all of the records that went into it, it's unlikely that anybody thought that census records were important for scholarship and genealogy had not become the huge industry that it has since become. You did not have the same huge interest in family history because that wasn't important to people then. And yet, 100 years later, people are so hungry for that information because they realise it 
provides them with such a direct connection with their past, the census returns of 1901 or 1911, that they can begin the individual process of excavating their family history or their family tree. And this is all part of changing attitudes towards the past, which must give archivists like myself pause for thought, because if attitudes change so fundamentally over time about the value of records, how do you know what it's okay to destroy? And that's our job, is to decide what we can do away with and what not. But again, I perhaps might not have been so cautious if I wasn't seared with the knowledge of 1922 from the day I walked into the door of the public record office in the early 70s. It became the overwhelming narrative, if you like, of working in that place. We were in a place that had suffered absolute depredation and heroic efforts had been made to restore it and to put things there that might replace what was lost. But we knew it was a black cloud of depression in terms of loss of vast numbers of really important records, ecclesiastical records, judicial records, prison records, administrative records, everything you can think of, as well as my precious census records, of course, which were, the, in my view, the biggest loss of all. And what you have in the aftermath then, of course, is an attempt to recover. Now, that doesn't lend itself to highfalutin prose or to evocative images or symbols. If I say to you the words, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, you know, that doesn't conjure up the same kind of powerful images. But the reason the Irish Manuscripts Commission came into being in 1928 was to try and begin the process of recovery. We have to come up with some mechanism to ensure something like this never happens again and that we take the preservation of all of this um, material that has survived and is still out there to be found, that we take it very seriously. There, there was a, there was just a, if you like, a, a picking up of the institution and a dusting down of it, literally and metaphorically, because at the same time the staff were trying to reassemble the collections, bodies like the Office of Public Works were looking at the Public Record Office building to see what they could do to repair it, uh, repair the damage, and work like that was going on late in 1922 into 1923, where they started the business of, of, of rebuilding and cleaning up. Um, and things happened, appeals went out to the legal profession, for example, in relation to uh, wills and, and other, other documents where the originals were destroyed. The solicitors responded very generously, and a huge influx of copy wills came in from the legal profession. There were attempts to rebuild. A lot of energy went into rebuilding the collections. Uh, like, I suppose, Phoenix-like, it rose from the ashes in 1928 and continued to function and work as the public record office in parallel with the state paper office. This is John McDonough, director of the National Archives of Ireland. After the restoration work on the building in the forecourts, the public record office was reopened in 1928. So what we had after 1922, in terms of we had the basement and two storeys above that, because that was the original plan, was that they would rebuild the building in stages after 1922, but they didn't do that. Uh, and then in the 1960s, there were, there were various requests being made uh, to the Department of Justice, which was the department under which the public record office functioned in the 1960s, requests were being made for new accommodation. And you have the attempt then from the 1960s constantly, uh, requests from the public record office, like we need, we need more space, we need a new building. And it's only now that that's being addressed. A long campaign was pursued to get adequate resources and legislation. So we would be, would have, through our professional lives, fight for the National Archives Act of 1986, which made everything 
uh, better. It, it, it made it uh, a crime to destroy official records without permission. The first piece of legislation dealing with archives for the new state was the National Archives Act of 1986 and that's the act under which we function now today. And what that act basically did was amalgamate the Public Record Office and the State Paper Office into this new National Archives. Uh, most importantly for us here in the National Archives, that piece of legislation made it a public right of access to records. You know, it, it, is, a, it is considered a right of a citizen to have access to, to the records of the state. Uh, which wasn't there heretofore. Which is liberating, literally, because it liberates records into the public domain. A huge volume of records, and it was essential for historians of my generation that we were able to get access to that material because we were able to begin writing a particular type of history that was informed by state records. But that came on the back of decades of effort. And you can trace the beginnings of those efforts back to the issue of recovering from the tragedy of 1922. And I suppose the other thing as well is here in the National Archives we work off a presumption of access. Records come here to be released. We don't work as a document store or as a, a safety deposit box in that the files come here under the 30-year rule or under the 20-year rule and anybody can come and, provided they have a reader's ticket, obtain access to those records. Which are held in the National Archives of Ireland now located on Bishop Street in Dublin city centre. We moved to Bishop Street here in 1988, two years after the, the legislation, to create the National Archives. And we've been here ever since. And we occupy this building here now. It's a six-storey office block. And we have a warehouse at the rear that we use as an overflow. That's the warehouse where the new storage would be built within that. That's our warehouse to the rear. So, so it's almost half the block here. Um, so it's a huge footprint that's enormous. Yeah. Uh, and very recently, under the Project Ireland 2040 banner, we have gained significant capital funding to build archival quality storage in the warehouse, which means that our footprint here on Bishop Street will increase in terms of our storage capability and capacity. So we're expecting that we'll be moving in, hopefully, and putting archives in place uh, in mid-2021. We'll be ready for 2022 for the 100th anniversary of the destruction of the Public Record Office to open, formally open our new facility. So that's the story of Ireland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it has taken us until now to get anything approaching a new building, as I'm sure you've heard from my colleagues in the archives, and that's hugely important. So, you know, we, we're gradually coming to terms with the fact that our archives do matter, that they have huge and important things to tell us about our history and that we neglect them at our peril. I would say it's important to place that in some context, that archival destruction is very common and it's still happening. The destruction of archives happens for lots of reasons. It happens because of accident. It also happens because of deliberate destruction. And in the 20th century in particular, there have been a series of really um, troubling, deliberate cultural atrocities, the destruction of the archives of the state of Naples in 1943, for instance. And the destruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland sits somewhere in that mix of an archive that was destroyed in the midst of a military conflict. So it is a very serious cultural loss for our country and we have to deal with it maturely and sensibly and trying to reconstruct what was lost through the very rich archival history that under 
lies the public record office, I think, is the most mature and potentially inspiring way we could approach that destruction and its centenary in 1922, anniversary is 2022. And the Project Beyond 2022 does just that. It is a collaboration between Trinity College Dublin and its archival partners, the National Archive of Ireland, the National Archives of UK, the Public Records of Northern Ireland and the Irish Manuscript Commission. The initial stage of the project is funded by the Irish Research Council. Beyond 2022 is a digital reconstruction of the destroyed record treasury of the Public Record Office. Kieran is the Deputy Director of Beyond 2022. How do you rebuild absent papers? Well, there was transcriptions, there were copies made, there were extracts taken from these papers that are scattered in libraries all around the world. So we were trying to bring those all back together, put them into a, a virtual, a digital archive, if you like. At this current phase, what we're doing by the end of the funded period is to the, making public the Woods' Guide from 1919 as a, a database. So people can go in and look in detail and see what was there and what was lost. The saddest book in Ireland. Um, we're now hoping to maybe add a layer of hope to that uh, if we get the funding to go, to go forward. So they can continue the virtual reconstruction of the public record office. Um, this is aiming to be a virtual reconstruction of the lost records, the records lost in 1922. You have the Irish diaspora around the world. There's also a documentary diaspora. Irish people are in Australia, New Zealand. They came to the public record office. They worked on research. They or their papers went off around the world. And we're in contact with archives and libraries around the world saying show me all you have that was transcribed from the public record office in Dublin. So we've made Woods's guide from 1919 into a modern catalogue database. So we've made a catalogue of an empty archive. There's nothing on the shelf, but we know what should be on the shelf. So you've got all the signs, all the notice boards saying, go up here for tax records, go there for County Clare records, go down here for census records. And they've got stickers on all, the, on all the shelves and all the boxes, but nothing on them. And our job is to repopulate those as much as we can with virtual uh, uh, digital images or links to external digital sources. So we have a, a resource free to the public to use for both the ordinary interested member of the public and the specialist or the student researcher or what have you. We're not claiming to rebuild the thing. We're not claiming to replace every single page. We do know that in some instances, we've replaced maybe 80% of a lost volume. That's at the high end. But in other cases, um, we'll, get, we'll get bits or partial descriptions of things. But as we amass it all together, I think the sum total of it will add hugely to our knowledge of how Ireland operated, how Ireland ran. And you'd like to get back to that situation in 21st century Ireland, where when we're commemorating it, we're also realising that those records must again be at the centre of our national life and our intellectual culture. There is another important project. The National Archive of Ireland, in partnership with the Irish Manuscript Commission, is working on the burnt material salvaged from the fire, and it is known as the 1922 Salved Project. 200 boxes of burnt material survived which the National Archives of Ireland have kept and preserved carefully since 1922, which are actually charred and they smell of ash and boxes of semi-ash. And they said, we don't know what to do with these, but don't throw them out, because maybe in the future we can do something. A hundred years later... So where are we going now? We're just going into conservation. Hi, Zoe. Hello. This is the Conservation Department of the National Archives of Ireland. Zoe Reid is the senior conservationist. 
basically happened, as I'm sure you other people have told you, is that um, after the fire, the staff went in and they created parcels. They gathered up whatever they could and they put them in brown paper parcels. So It's an amazing image, though, that you imagine within that tragedy that they took up these mm. delicate burned remains and hopefuls. And yes, exactly. They didn't have the conservation skill set at the time, but they knew they couldn't get rid of it and they knew that I suppose one day somebody might. And so we were always, as staff, and since I've been here for the last 17 years, always very aware that this was a collection that needed time and investment in it. And I suppose the opportunity has come around now because we're sort of five years away, four years away from the 100th anniversary of the destruction of the PRO office. Uh, And therefore, we said, right, let's see what we can do. And so we did the survey towards the end of 2017, a survey of the 238 parcels that were there that had always been known as the salved material. And on the findings of that survey, we managed to get um, some more funding and we progressed to another short clean, as I say, of these 28 items. And you've also got to remember that even though we kind of went, oh, they wrapped things in brown paper 100 years ago or 96 years ago, We still have them. They're still here, which is the amazing and exciting thing. Here in Zoe's conservation studio is one of those salved items. It is a large charred mass, no longer recognisable as a document. It looks more like a piece of sculpture. This. Okay, so this is, um, it looks like a piece of coral. It's probably about, I'd say about 30 leaves of um, vellum that are all stitched together either at the top or the base. From the Court of Common Pleas, it's from 1783 to 91. Um, And then what's happened is from the heat of the fire, it's become charred. And because vellum is skin, basically what happens is it shrinks. It it reacts that way and the collagen um, gelatinizes and becomes hard and crispy. We we nickname them pompadoms. I mean, that's what they look like. They look like crispy pompadoms, and yet they're actually written documents. You can hear, see here in the top, there is. You can see some identification of writing, but you can also see how fused and brittle it is all the way around the side. I mean, it's magnificent. Yeah, and within those layers, information. That's the funny thing. You look at it as an object, and then you think, no, this is not just an object. There, there's vital information flowing through those charred and ruined pages if we can only learn how to open it up we learn something that that's always what's fascinating about those things okay we haven't unwrapped that we can if you want yes please okay this is certificates issued to adventurers for land it was a rule and it dates from 18 uh, 1665 to 1668 now, this is amazing. I, I get shivers to think that I hear something so old that somebody of that yes. period touched and wrote on. Oh, this is, this is stunning. So this is approximately, a, um, I think it's about 70 leaves of parchment, which are all stitched together at the top. Um, and traditionally, vellum documents and large vellum documents like this would have been rolled, and that's how they were stored. Um, that's fantastic in one sense, because it means they don't take up too much space. It's not great in another sense, means they're difficult for people to look at um, because the vellum wants to move. And so what I'm doing here is a very gentle process where we just have it between very light boards and we have it unrolled. So it's still all stitched together at the top, but we're just trying to see if with the 
with the humidity and the moisture in the air in our storage area, if we can do something. And it has. It's, it's kind of nicely, very gently. It's been like this probably for about two months. I think the exciting thing from the historical point of view is this, this first sheet is an index sheet. The index is just a, a, a listing of names, obviously, alphabetically. But then, although the writing is very difficult to discern, but you can see them naming particular pieces of land going to named people. Like, for example, decree to the Duke of Buckingham 120 acres of arable land plantation measure. So they're recording what they're giving over to named individuals. These are people who would have in some way invested in the English government's conquest of Ireland in the 17th century. Um, So either for service or for money given over to support the army and they would be granted land. Uh, So they were known as adventurers. Um, And these are certificates confirming that they've handed over money. So, um, actually, this one... Zoe lifts off the lid of a conservation box. Inside is a book, wrapped in tissue, which, as Tom says... They have, been, they have literally been through the war. And because when they occupied the Courts building, they used some of the records, if you like, as sandbags or as substitutes, for, and they put them in the windows. And so this is... I'll let Tom do the reading while I get this out and take a look at it. It's so this is, a, this is a, just a, a registrar's court book recording cases coming before the court. So it's from 1906-07, so it's not that old in, 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 in relative terms. Um, but. but it's actually quite solid in the fact that that text block, I, the choirs of the paper that have been stitched together are still functioning and all still together as a book. Okay, So I'm just putting it on a book cushion to support it when I open it out. Um, and it just means and we'll be able to show the damage that's there so oh, what uh, am I looking at there in terms of so damage you can see essentially this is where a bullet would have gone through the book what you're seeing is the kinetic energy of the impact of either the bullet or the piece of metal going through the book and what it's done is it's fused the pages together it's pushed them together um, so they're actually what's known as blocked together and this damage is part of its history parts of the book are still very accessible but here you can see that these pages are fused together. So we'd have to do some conservation to try and open up these pages to get access to the information. But I suppose from a conservation point of view, the ethical dilemma is, do you repair everything? And therefore, does it lose its history? Because it's fascinating as an object, as it is, with that damage. Um, Well, I'm probably going to leave it as it is because I think to do anything more is too intrusive at this stage. And the story behind the damage is actually as much of the history as the contents of the book, which I know probably isn't what archivists think. But but it's so true, because yeah. the fact that that was there in, in 1922, and mm. that is a bullet hole that went through it, yeah. that's, the st- that's the story. It is. It really is. So all kinds of strange things come at you from access to, to archives. But yeah, I like the. I, I do believe that archives have social consequences, and I've written and spoken a lot about this over the years. That if we can deal with stories that people have to tell, stories that that we have to be cautious about, because people can tell lies, people people's memories can be mixed up. Official documents don't tell you what it felt like to be alive at the time, but nonetheless. All of these things bring us something. So what it does is my favourite phrase, access to records complicates the narrative. 
It stops us from having a simplistic view of the past, a black and white version of either our historical past, our political past, our social past, or our own family's past. We have to think about strange issues that we might not have. That is why our archives matter so much. They enable us to look at history and all its complexities. And as crucial as it is to preserve and protect our archives, so too is it to provide access. Katrina Crow, during her career that spanned four decades and as former head of special projects at the National Archives of Ireland, managed the Irish Census Online project, which placed the 1901 and 1911 census online free of charge. I think access is probably the most important issue facing uh, repositories. But certainly one of, one of the things I'm proudest of is putting the 1901 and 1911 census online with my wonderful colleagues because you don't do anything like that on your own. I wonder if nowadays I would be allowed to open up the census records. When I began, there was no such thing as the Data Protection Commissioner, for example. I think, as with any new uh, institution, People often are very overcautious and go too far in terms of protecting what they perceive, probably rightly, to be very important rights on the part of the citizen to privacy. It's one of the dilemmas of making archival material accessible. There's a question of rights, there's also a question of responsibilities in relation to people's privacy. So we talk about the right of access, quite rightly, the democratisation of the archives, because they're not just about history and archives, they're also about transparency and they're about the democratic process and, and that sense of public ownership. But you're also dealing with archival material that can contain very sensitive information. So the dilemma has always been, when is it appropriate to release that material into the public domain? So when do they become public records as opposed to that private individual's personal information? Um, there are very differing views on that. And even if you take recent events in our history, such as the peace process, most obviously. What kind of a situation would you have if Britain released its archival records relating to the peace process and the Irish records were locked up? But at the same time, you could argue that it's too early to release material of that nature. Thrown into that mix is our contemporary preoccupation with data protection and the rights that people have around data protection. So it is a dilemma and there is no easy answer to it. But what we do know is that if data protection is to take precedence over the question of public ownership or access and that you are going to lose an opportunity to excavate the ordinary lives of people. And if you think about all that has been championed quite rightly in the last 20 years, it really has been about access to that kind of history. It really struck me during the centenary of the 1916 Rising there was much more of a focus on the experience of so-called ordinary people instead of a relentless focus on the leaders and the men of 1916. We were talking about the lived experience. How were people going about their daily lives, whether they were involved or not? What was the context? What was the texture of Ireland a century ago? My worry is that it's going to be very difficult in 100 years for people to get the same sense of that texture and that experience for 2016 because of data protection. That material will be deemed to be too sensitive to be used by historians. So there will be a worry that some of the momentum that has built up over the last couple of decades could be stalled. I think one of the things we need to really look at... Um 
we've, we've got through 1916, the, the anniversary of 1916, with a certain amount of grace, I have to say. I think the state did a very good job. I think we had a lot of very good records available, which is really important that people were able to make up their own minds about what might have happened. But we are now embarking on dark years, and that would be the War of Independence and particularly the Black and Tans depredations and then the Civil War. Because one of the things that's coming out um, about the Civil War now, the Military Service Pension Files Archive, mm-hmm. which is so voluminous in its scale, but one of the things that is coming out of the aftermath of that period through this archival material is the amount of trauma that was internalised. And you can read about a lot of it in these files because there were very detailed medical records about these individuals, some of whom ended up in institutions uh, suffered from grave mental health problems and were clearly, some of them, suffering from what we would now recognise as post-traumatic stress disorder. And... For an archive to be able to shed light on that trauma and for that trauma to get an airing through the release of that material, that's hugely powerful. And in our own case, we have to interrogate what is it about privileging violence that's so attractive to us? Why is it that we regard the 1916 Rising as more important than home rule? Why is it that 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 whiff of sulphur is more attractive than the scratching of a pen on a piece of paper to pass legislation that actually changes people's lives. What is wrong with this? Now we have an opportunity, because we're looking back at the safe, hopefully detoxified distance of 100 years, to be able to look at what actually happened, because we do have the archival infrastructure now in place for books to be written, for people to make up their own minds. I believe that people are well capable of interrogating sometimes quite difficult records to come to their own conclusions about what happened in any particular event. But it's, it's very urgent. History lives on. And, you know, we, we ignore the past at our peril, particularly in a country like this, that has now had a legacy of violence, at least in one part of the country, for a very, very long time indeed. We need to understand what all this is about. And perhaps that is the greatest function of all, of our archives and public records. Child Remains is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Contact Studio. Extracts read by Damien Kearney.